Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas from Confluence Investment Management, focusing on major geopolitical and economic trends and their investment implications. In its 2023 Geopolitical Outlook Report, Confluence has identified five major trends around the world that serve as guideposts to influence both long-term and short-term investment recommendations. The authors of this report are Confluence Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady and Market Strategist Patrick Fear and Hernandez, and both Bill and Patrick join us for this discussion. But gentlemen, I don't think any of the themes you've identified in this report will surprise investors who have been following our reports, but even themes you feel comfortable with are susceptible to challenges all the time from fresh and unexpected news events. I'd like to ask Bill and then Patrick to discuss the value of doing this work to identify and present these broad themes, especially when sudden events might tempt you to change your investment recommendations. Well, thanks, Phil. And what you describe is a tension that always exists at the intersection of geopolitics and markets. Geopolitical situations tend to be either short-term events that are notable but not causing permanent effects on markets or long-term structural factors that color how markets behave at the margins and overall. So things like wars, conflicts, revolutions can all be short-term factors that investors have to manage. If you don't change the underlying structural conditions, you tend to treat them as short-term factors. For example, back in the day when we ran the portfolios at A.G. Edwards, the 9-11 event was treated as a short-term market situation that didn't require a wholesale change in portfolios. We did reduce some of our risk exposure, but generally did not expect the war on terror to have lasting market effects. In some years, our outlook report is more of a laundry list of potential events that could come to pass. When underlying conditions are stable, treating geopolitical risk in that fashion makes sense. But when underlying conditions are changing as they are now, a broader approach is warranted. Analyzing geopolitics can help frame major changes in policy and international relations. What makes these tricky is that the effects play out over time but are sometimes exacerbated by short-term events. So, for example, the Ukraine war is a short-term event, but we think it is part of a broader change, which is the end of the post-Cold War era and the beginning of a new great power conflict. So we do adjust portfolios to short-term situations, but always with an eye on the underlying. And I would only add that doing this analysis and then tracking the developing geopolitical trends builds a kind of intellectual capital. It builds out our knowledge base about the world and how it works. It teaches us lessons about how today's leaders and institutions operate. That knowledge leaves us better prepared to assess how things are likely to play out when new unexpected developments happen. Well, let's go to the issues. Bill, issue number one identified in this report is called the big picture, which might be defined, I guess, as the continuing move away from globalization. What recent news events fit comfortably within this broad theme? Well, there's several, I think. The U.S. reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine was, was telling. The financial sanctions rendered the bulk of Russia's foreign reserves untradeable. This action was an aggressive action designed to isolate Russia, but it sends a warning to the rest of the world that the safety of the dollar and the reserve asset treasuries may not be as strong as one thought. Without a reserve currency and a reserve asset, globalization is hard to maintain. Actions by the U.S. to restrict semiconductor sales to China should be seen in a similar vein. Well, you identify inflation as one outgrowth of this trend. 
the consumer sees this as a bad thing. What are some good things that flow from this big picture? Well, you know, the flip side of inflation is usually gains by labor over capital. Labor has been losing to capital since the 1980s, but after the Cold War, the losses mounted. This was also a period of low inflation, mostly through the suppression of wages. We expect a steady reindustrialization of America. We, we don't expect we will see the mass industrial employment like we did in the 1950s, but the reshoring of production will give a boost to regions that we currently refer to as the Rust Belt. The Inflation Reductions Act subsidy rules that favor U.S. electric vehicles over foreign ones is an example of this process. Can we be encouraged by what could be a rebound of the American working class? Well, yes, although it may not be so beneficial for investors, it should help those who have not benefited much over the past three decades. But we would be remiss if we didn't note that inflation is a cost to all. On an absolute basis, I expect that inflation will make us all worse off. But on a relative basis, some narrowing of the differences in regions and incomes could blunt some of the political polarization that has emerged over the past 15 years. Issue number two, it's identified as the expanding, strengthening state and populism. Patrick, why does a world that is evolving into competing economic camps demand stronger governments? Well, first, Phil, remember that the competitors aren't just economic camps. They're also geopolitical camps that are playing power politics with each other and facing the risk of military conflict. The need to build up national defense capabilities alone requires stronger government in areas like conscription, building up defense industry, imposing rules that limit economic or other aid to potential rivals and the like. Economic warfare is another aspect of the conflict, and it requires a strong government to impose limits on trade, technology flows, capital flows, and migration between a country and its rivals. And remember that building up a country's national defense capability also implies some level of taxes or other methods of raising revenues in order to buy weapons and pay troops. Let's narrow our focus to one geographical area for a moment. How might a need for stronger governments present challenges, and opportunities for the European Union. Well, first, citizens in many EU countries have long resisted uh, stronger militaries, so rechanneling budget funds toward defense will likely generate pushback. But just as important, the U.S. effort to cut off China and the rest of its evolving bloc from Western trade, technology, and capital runs completely counter to the EU's traditional goals of free trade and ever greater globalization. That's why you see pushback from Germany in particular regarding the U.S. effort to clamp down on Western technology exports to China. Finally, the U.S effort to implement an active industrial policy supporting U.S. information technology and green innovations also runs counter to the EU's espoused value of reduced state intervention in their economies. The EU certainly has a reputation for tough regulation, but its adherence to non-state interference in the economy is probably stronger than most Americans realize. Why might stocks be more resilient than bonds to this trend? 
Well, if we're right that governments will have to strengthen in order to raise their defense capabilities, impose limits on the export of technology and other goods to their adversaries, and to implement a domestic industrial policy, the result will likely be reduced economic efficiency, higher costs, higher prices, higher inflation, and increased interest rates. Well, higher inflation and interest rates are clearly and fundamentally negative for bonds. For the stock markets of the evolving U.S. bloc, however, we we think the negative impact could be at least partially offset by a rechanneling of investment back home and away from China and the rest of its bloc. Companies will eventually adjust and recoup some of the efficiencies that they otherwise are losing even as they bring investment home, and that could limit the hit to margins and stock prices. Patrick, you also presented uh, in the report issue number three, which is all about China, specifically its ability to influence other nations and be an effective leader of an economic bloc. Would you say that China is currently an effective leader? Well, within its evolving bloc, I think it's accurate to say China is dominant, but it's still learning how to lead and control its bloc. Over the last decade, for example, China channeled about a trillion dollars to mostly less developed countries around the world in order to curry favor with them and bring them into its bloc. But now, it's clear that those loans have often created a painful debt trap for those countries, and China has been forced to ratchet back the effort. Another example is probably how China's stated support for Russia has left it with egg on its face as Russia launched its disastrous uh, disastrous war against Ukraine. So China's having some success, especially in reducing the number of countries that recognize Taiwan over the People's Republic of China. But it doesn't exercise perfect control over its bloc, and it certainly wants to exercise greater control than it now has. So how must China change for its influence to grow? Well, we suspect China will go down the path of creating a kind of modernized version of 19th century colonialism or imperialism, where it'll use its enormous economic power to tie countries to it and peel them off from U.S. influence. We think the mechanism will basically involve China using its trade, technology, and capital to build imperial-like relationships, where China buys up relatively cheap commodities from the weaker countries in its sphere, and in return sells them its higher value industrial and technological exports. The goal for China would be to use up its excess industrial capacity and help pay its debts. Does China's recent attempt to roll back pandemic restrictions fit within this theme? Well, China's greatest weapon to create its new empire is its own economy, so it has to keep economic growth as high as possible. But the economy can't grow well if it's constantly facing the disruptive pandemic lockdowns in President Xi's draconian zero-COVID policies. We think the recent relaxation in China's pandemic restrictions are mostly aimed at keeping up economic growth and avoiding a threatened loss of investment as foreign producers move their factories elsewhere. That would be bad not only for China's effort to exert control over its own bloc, but it would also prompt more politically destabilizing protests. How about, Patrick, the recent seemingly friendly overtures between China and Saudi Arabia? Where does this fit as part of China's leadership aspirations? And, and which country, China or Saudi Arabia, currently holds the upper hand? 
Well, those overtures are also part of China's evolving efforts toward empire. As the U.S. refocuses its security efforts out of the Middle East and cuts its reliance on Saudi energy supplies, leaving Saudi Arabia feeling abandoned and threatened, the Saudis are looking toward China's huge energy market as a reason to cozy up to Beijing. This is probably a good example of how China, with its enormous economy and the size of its demand, has the upper hand on many key commodity exports. One more question about this issue number three, China. How is China's determination to lead and control likely to impact investments? Well, for one thing, the growing friction between the U.S. and China will likely make cross-border investments between them much tougher. U.S. investors will likely lose the ability to invest freely in China and a range of China-affiliated emerging markets, since producers from the U.S. and its allies may also need to move production out of low-cost China and its bloc. Overall, Western prices, inflation, and interest rates could rise while profit margins are reduced. That would probably be a A headwind for equities, but especially for bonds, as we mentioned earlier. On the other hand, increased geopolitical tensions will likely buoy commodity prices. Bill, you identified the race for space as a fourth major geopolitical theme. And since I've read your report, I've been noticing in the news many items related to this race for space. Many countries are involved. It it does seem that a growing number of countries have space aspirations. This is expensive. So the potential payoffs must be great. You identified those payoffs in the areas of defense, commodities, and solar power. These payoffs seem to be far off, only fully realized years from now. Or am I wrong? Well, Phil, you know, be it far for me to ever accuse you of being wrong, but some I think are pretty far off, but some might be a lot closer than we expect. I think the real driving effort here is in the near term is defense. My wife the other day asked me, why all this rush back to the moon after all these years? It's because of modern warfare, which uses satellites to see the battlefield. And there is evidence that being above these satellites is a good way to attack them. Thus, if the moon becomes a military base, you use it to protect your own eyes and poke out the eyes of your enemies. Solar power from space, interestingly enough, has been under research since the 1970s. No one's been able to make it work on a cost-effective basis. No one has been able to make it work on a cost-effective basis, but the improvements in technology may be at a point where breakthroughs might be possible. Space mining, on the other hand, it's probably going to take a while. So in what ways does the race for space currently impact your short-term and long-term investment recommendations? Well, in our investing, we've had a definitive bias toward the defense industry, and that is going to be a part supported by this race for space. Beyond that, though, we'll just have to see how this plays out. And Bill, issue number five is what you call the brittleness of authoritarianism. The easing of restrictive policies by governments in China and Iran seem to have been taken very grudgingly and as a last resort in the face of what appear to be widespread protests. Are these limited successes likely to encourage stronger, popular anti-government efforts? Well, that's kind of the mystery, isn't it? There's a there's an old Woody Allen joke that says there are two kinds of people in the world, those who think there are two kinds of people and those who don't. In this case, I think the differences between democracy and authoritarianism come down to the tension between change and stability. Democracies change on a regular basis. Governments fall and rise and subject citizens to changes that they may or may not want. 
Authoritarian governments, on the other hand, are often static. Nothing much changes. This stability is attractive at times, but if conditions require changes, it can be more difficult for them to adapt. Sometimes when change becomes necessary, authoritarian regimes can lag events and lead to situations where it becomes hard to control the path of events. On the other hand, the natural rigidity of authoritarianism can lead to intolerable conditions that suddenly burst into revolution. Good example of that was the Arab Spring. The lessons learned by the current crop of authoritarian regimes is that the only path of staying in power is suppression. There is historical evidence to show that attempts at reform lead to overthrow. However, in this narrative, the counterfactual is lost. We don't know for sure if staying the course of additional suppression would have worked either. In other words, if Gorbachev had not made his reforms, would the USSR still have survived? What suppression might do is lead citizens to conclude they have little to lose by rebellion. Is there one country in particular where you can envision protests suddenly morphing into full-scale revolution? Well, there are numerous candidates, but I have never seen a predictive model of revolution. We all have our observations. I do, though, think that making people miserable at some point invites problems. To sum up, Confluence has identified five major geopolitical themes to watch for in 2023. It looks like there are plenty of ingredients for volatility. Is the investment world becoming a more dangerous place? Oh, most definitely. Deglobalization alone is going to be tricky to navigate. The change in the inflation regime will be quite challenging. I have some degree of confidence we have the direction of travel correct, but I will also admit the exact timing will be hard to get right. And I agree. I feel pretty confident that we'll look back on the stable, low inflation, low interest rate world of the last decade with nostalgia in the coming years. Because of increased geopolitical conflicts and new economic forces, the future investment environment will probably be much more volatile and treacherous than the past one. Of course, there are always surprises, events that you can't anticipate. As we look back over the past year, 2022, can I ask each of you to discuss a geopolitical development that has surprised you the most? Personally, I didn't think Putin was going to invade Ukraine. Patrick was much more inclined to believe that he would. I was also very surprised at the, at the extent of the freezing of Russian foreign reserves. To me, that was a very dangerous development. My big surprise is also related to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but it involves the unexpected way in which the Ukrainians have been so effective, not only at defending most of their territory, but in the way that in key areas they've been able to turn back the Russians. Since the Ukrainians are relying so much on Western weapons, force structure, and, and operational doctrine, I think this is a welcome validation of the West's warfighting capabilities, despite the fiascos of Iraq and Afghanistan over the last couple of decades. I, I think the Ukrainian success to date should provide some confidence that the U.S. and its allies can defend themselves quite well as China, Russia, and other authoritarian states try to assert themselves and, and weaken the West. Thank you, Bill and Patrick. For our listeners to choose from the full slate of Confluence written reports, including the report that we have discussed today, simply access confluenceim.com. Today's discussion is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. 
You can find us on Twitter at Confluence I Am.